Hello, everyone, and welcome to Live Through Jesus with Courtney Gilmore. On this episode, Jacob finally lets Benjamin go back to Egypt with his brothers, and then we'll find out what happens whenever they see Joseph this next time. And we'll talk about judging the reaction by the outcome, and then what to do whenever we feel helpless. Genesis 43, Lesson 7. Now, just as a quick side note, I'll be reading all the scripture references for you, so you're free to just sit back, listen, and absorb, or you can grab your Bible and read along. Most of the time, I'll be reading from the New King James Version, but if I switch, I'll let you know. At the beginning of each episode, I'll introduce the title, so if you want the entire study in writing, you can go to livethroughjesus.com and buy it for under $5. Each one will cover two to three months' worth of episodes, and once you buy, then it'll be immediately available for download. In addition to a little extra studying, it also allows you the benefit of some charts and keyword definitions, but it isn't necessary. Okay, so let's get started. Last week, we read in Genesis 42, and at that time, the seven years of plenty were over, and the food had been gathered, and the famine was there. And Joseph's family was living in Hebron, and they had run out of food, and so Jacob sent all of his sons except for Benjamin to Egypt to buy food. And when they got there, they went to Joseph, and he recognized them, but they didn't recognize him. And so he questioned them and accused them of being spies. And he put Simeon in prison and told them that in order to prove that they were not spies, they had to go back and get Benjamin, because they had told him about their brother that was at home, bring Benjamin back to them so that they could prove that they weren't spies. And so when they got home, they told Jacob everything that had happened. And this week, we're going to find out if Jacob lets Benjamin go back with them. Now, if you happen to miss last week's episode, you might want to go back and listen to it because we spent most of our time talking about the brother's guilty conscience and how we can free ourselves from that feeling and about God's forgiveness and mercy and his way of covering and hiding our sins. So let's go ahead and begin reading at the end of Genesis 42 and see what Jacob has to say to his son. Sons about Benjamin. This is Genesis 42:36. And Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin. All of these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. If any calamity should fall on him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Now the famine was severe in the land, and it came to pass, when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Go back and buy a little food. But Judah spoke to him and said, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face until your brother is with you. And Israel said, Why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you had still another brother? 
But they said, The man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told him, according to these words, Could we possibly have known that he would say, Bring your brother down? Then Judah said to Israel his father, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned the second time. And their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down the present for the man, a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother also and arise, go back to the man. And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he might release your other brother and Benjamin. If I'm bereaved, then I'm bereaved. So we find out right away that Jacob is not going to let Benjamin go with them. He already lost two sons in his mind. He lost Joseph a long time ago, and now Simeon's gone too. And he's just willing to say, you know what? They're gone, whatever, but I'm not risking another son. And so Reuben tries to convince his dad, and it's kind of a weird way of convincing him because he offers up his own two sons if he doesn't bring Benjamin back. So he's like, well, you've lost two sons. So if I allow you to lose your sons, then my punishment will be that I lose my two sons. I mean, there's several problems with that. But one problem with that is that these are Jacob's grandsons. So Jacob's still not coming out ahead on that deal. But maybe Reuben is just trying to relate to Jacob, just trying to show, hey, I'm putting myself in your shoes and understanding that you've lost your sons and you don't want to lose another. And I'm going to put my sons on the line so that, you know, I would be the same as you if something were to happen to Benjamin. He's just trying to relate to his dad, I think. And this would put the ultimate amount of pressure on Reuben because, you know, if the loss was only going to be to Jacob, Jacob was going to lose three sons and nothing was going to happen to Reuben. Then, you know, when the times got hard, Reuben might be tempted to give up. But when he knows that there's consequences to his own family, then that would give him much more motivation to, you know, protect Benjamin and keep doing whatever he has to do to get him home safely. And so most likely he just thought that this would be the ultimate assurance to Jacob because Jacob would know, hey, I'm not going to allow my own sons to die. And so I'll definitely bring yours back home to you because, you know, we said a while ago that this wouldn't be consolation to Jacob if his own grandsons died. But Reuben's not counting on that. He's saying that's how much I'm willing to put them on the line because I know I wouldn't let anything happen to them. Therefore, I won't let anything happen to Benjamin either. That's the purpose of it, right or wrong. I think that that is his reasoning. But Jacob is not having anything to do with this and says, you know, if anything happened to Benjamin, I would just die in sorrow. So he's just not leaving with you. And I guess we'll just have to leave Simeon in prison and, you know, forget about it because I'm not risking a third son. But then, of course, they run out of food and he wants to send them again. And this time Judah speaks up and he says, there's no point in us going. 
if you're not going to let Benjamin go back with us, there's no reason for us to go because the man made it very clear we would not see him again unless we had our brother with us. And if we don't see him again, we won't get any food. So if you want to see Benjamin with us, we'll go. If not, there's no point. And at that point, Jacob's like, why did you tell him about Benjamin anyway? And they're like, hey, he asked us like a lot of questions and we just answered them. There was no way for us to know that he was going to ask us to bring Benjamin back with us. Like there was no way for us to predict that. And so I just for a minute want to talk about that because I think this is something that we're all tempted to do. First of all, Jacob wasn't there, so he couldn't understand But he would have probably done the exact same thing, right? If he would have been in their shoes, he would have done the same thing as them. And so it's real easy to criticize other people when you're not in their shoes. But when we're in their position, we very well might do the same thing. And so that's one lesson to us, I think, is to try to be aware that we very well might would have done the exact same thing and not criticize other people after the fact just because circumstances turned out wrong. And so that brings me to the second thought about this, which is we really shouldn't judge as to whether something is right or wrong on the outcome, because oftentimes the reaction is completely fitting and the outcome just was bad. That's just the way it is. It's not because we did anything wrong. It's just because we didn't have all the information to make a good decision or whatever. And so if you judge on the outcome as to whether something's right or wrong, well, that can only be done after the fact. And so we have to make decisions before we know what the outcome is. And sometimes those decisions are good and sometimes those decisions are bad. But if we had it to do all over again with the information that we had, we very well might do the exact same thing because there might not be anything wrong with that. It just happens that it didn't turn out well because it just wasn't going to turn out well, not because it was a bad idea, because we did anything wrong or anything like that. And so we just need to be careful about questioning things after the fact when we're not even the person that's there, because Judah is exactly right. They were questioned. They answered the questions honestly. They had absolutely no way to know that he was going to ask them to bring Benjamin back. And Jacob would not have known that either and would have answered the questions honestly himself. And they would be in the exact same situation if Jacob would have been there. So he has really no right to question them. Anyway, I just wanted to bring that up because I think we need to be careful about those two things. Now, afterwards, Judah responds again to his dad, and he vows to take care of Benjamin this time. Reuben already tried, and Jacob wasn't having it at that time. And so this time, Judah tries, and he says, hey, I will ensure his safety. Just leave him in my hands, and if I don't bring him back, then I'm the one that's guilty. And he doesn't give any specific punishment for himself if he doesn't do it. He just says that he'll bear the blame forever. And this time, Jacob says, fine, I don't know what else I'm going to do. Go and we'll just pray that God's with you. And if I'm grieved, I'm grieved. You know, he's just like, I I guess I have no options. And so that makes us question why. Why did he not put him in Reuben's hands, but he trusts Judah with him? Is it that he trusts Judah more? I mean, that's possible, right? Because Reuben is the one that slept with Rachel's maidservant after she died. 
the same woman that his own father had slept with and the mother of two of his brothers. So maybe he's just not to be trusted. Maybe Judah's argument is just a little more persuasive than Reuben's. I mean, first of all, he put a little bit of it back on Jacob. He's like, you know what? If you would have let us go when we asked you in the first place, we could have already been there and back again. But you, you know, piddled around and now we don't have any food and that's kind of on you, you know, and maybe Jacob saw that and realized. He also told him, he said, you know, you can lose Joseph and Simeon and possibly lose Benjamin. Or you can lose us all to this famine because if we don't go buy any food, we're all going to die. So, you know, that's a pretty persuasive argument. It's not just, hey, I'll protect your kid. It's like, really, you don't have a lot of options. So let us all sit here and die or risk one more kid. That's really your options. And so most likely, you know, that was a pretty persuasive argument on top of the fact that, you know, like I said, they're just out of food. So it probably was just the timing of Judah, but it also could have been a little bit of the fact that he didn't really trust Reuben with Benjamin. I don't really know. But either way, he decides to send them back and he sends them with a lot of gifts. And then if you'll remember when Joseph sent the brothers back home, he asked that their money be put back in their sacks. And so they all have their money from last time as if they never paid for this food. And so Jacob said, hey, take that money plus the money from the first time so that they can see that we're not trying to steal this. And, you know, maybe it was just an accident and you can pay for both of the food plus give this man a gift. So maybe you will be able to get Simeon and bring all of your brothers back. So Jacob sounds completely helpless and he realizes that there's just nothing he can do if he loses his sons, he loses his sons. And so that's a horrible place to be. But if you notice, this is what gets him to call on the Lord. He depends on God because he knows that he can't depend on himself. There's nothing that he can do. And so instead of continuing to hold on to Benjamin, he lets him go and just asks God to have mercy on him. And, you know, sometimes that helplessness is really the best place that we can be, even though it doesn't feel good at the time. Because that causes us to place our trust in him and not in ourselves. And he's always better than us. He's always the one that we should have our trust in in the first place. He shouldn't be our last resort and the one that we turn to only whenever we can't do things for ourselves or all of our ideas fail or things are completely beyond our control. But sometimes he has to bring us to that place so that we will let go and trust him. And so I want to read a couple of verses because it's really hard to feel out of control and helpless. And it's also sometimes hard to trust God. And so that's when it's good for us to know scripture. So the first one is found in Psalm 31, 1 through 10. And it says, in you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You've redeemed me, O Lord, God of truth. 
I have hated those who regard useless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in your mercy, for you have considered my trouble, you've known my soul in adversities, and have not shut me up into the hand of my enemy. You have set my feet in a wide place. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. My eye wastes away with grief, yes, my soul and my body. For my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Now skip down to verse 14. I just hate to read this whole chapter. So verse 14, it says 14 to 17. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. You are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me for your mercy's sake. Do not let me be ashamed, O Lord, for I have called on you. Let the wicked be ashamed. Let them be silent in the grave. And then go down to verse 23 and 24. Love the Lord, all you his saints, for the Lord preserves the faithful and fully repays the proud person. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart, all you who hope in the Lord. So those are just some good verses to remind us that God takes care of us and he is worthy of our trust. Now also look at Psalm 71 verses 1 through 8. In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be put to shame. Sounds very familiar as the last one, right? Deliver me in your righteousness and cause me to escape. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be my strong refuge to which I may resort continually. You've given the commandment to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Deliver me, O my God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the hand of the unrighteous and cruel man. For you are my hope, O Lord. You are my trust from my youth. By you I have been upheld from birth. You are he who took me out of my mother's womb. My praise shall be continually of you. I have become as a wonder to many, but you are my strong refuge. Let my mouth be filled with your praise and your glory all the day long. So just continual verses of trust in God and God being the person that he runs to, the one that protects him, the one that is strong, the one that can deliver him, that can keep him from the enemy, the one that we can hope in the one that created us and loves us. Okay, last verse, Jeremiah 17, 5 through 8. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land which is not inhabited. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, and whose hope is in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river, and will not fear when the heat comes, and its leaf will be green, and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. So this contrasts the man that does not trust God and trusts in himself and then the man that trusts God. And he says that the one that trusts in himself 
we'll have nothing, basically. It talks about how he'll be like a shrub in the desert. And he won't have any good when the good comes. He'll be like the the parched places in the wilderness. And then the blessed man that puts his trust and hope in God will be like a tree that's planted by the waters. And so he'll have roots in the river and he doesn't have any fear because he has fruit. And so when we place our faith and trust in God and allow him, it's like the verse that we read last week or the week before in John about abiding in him and him being the vine and us being the branches and how we can bear fruit if we just stay in him. If we stay in him, then we have all the things that we need in order to be okay. But if we're not in him and the famine comes, we've got nothing. That's what it's talking about there. And so whenever we feel helpless, we just have to turn to the person that can help us. We turn to the person that is always there. You know, this is not in the lesson, but when I said turn to the one that can help us, I just decided that I want to read this verse also. Psalm 46. I think we've read this before, which is probably why I didn't put it in the lesson, but it's just so good. Psalm 46, 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. God is our ever-present help in times of trouble. And so when we feel helpless, we can turn to a person that we know can help us. And he can be the one that we run to because he's strong enough to take all of our fears. So the next time that you feel helpless... Decide that as opposed to being upset about that and feeling like you're in a bad place, decide that that is exactly the place that you need to be in order to turn to the one that can actually help you. Because being helpless in our own right is good because we're not good at this anyway. We can't help ourselves anyway. God wants us to realize that. That's what he was saying in that Jeremiah verse. The person that depends upon himself ends up with nothing. We can't do these things on our own because we don't know what we're doing. It's just like the brothers, whenever the dad said, why did you tell him all about it? And he said, we didn't know. How are we supposed to know? We don't know when we do things ourselves sometimes that they're going to turn out bad. But God does. And so why are we dependent upon ourselves whenever we can depend on the almighty Notice that he calls God Almighty in this verse when he's praying to him. Why not turn to the one that has all power, all might, all strength, complete ability, all knowledge? I mean, turn to that person. When we feel helpless, when we have no power, then turn to the one that has all the power. That only makes sense. So again, next time you feel helpless, decide that's an okay place to be because that's the place that lets you turn to the one that can help you. Okay, so let's move on and read the rest of this chapter, beginning in verse 15. So the men took that present and Benjamin, and they took double the money in their hand and arose and went down to Egypt, and they stood before Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready, for these men will dine with me at noon. Then the man did as Joseph ordered, and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. 
And so the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house. And they said, it's because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time that we are here so that they may make a case against us and seize us and take us as slaves with our donkeys. And when they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of the house and they said, Oh, sir, we indeed came down the first time to buy food, but it happened when we came into the encampment that we opened our sacks and there each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight, so that we have brought it back in our hand and we have brought down other money in our hand to buy the food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. But the steward said, Peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I have your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And so the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water, and they washed their feet and gave their donkeys feed. Then they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they would eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house and bowed down before him to the earth. Hmm. Again, dream coming true. They're bowing before Joseph. Verse 27. Then he asked them about their well-being and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they said, Your servant, our father, is in good health. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves before him. Another time, take note of them bowing down to Joseph. Verse 29, Then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Now his heart yearned for his brother, and so Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out and restrained himself and said, Serve the bread. So they set him a place by himself and they by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews for that's an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked astonished at one another. And he took the servings to them from before him. But Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs. And so they drank and they were merry with him. So it's evident from this passage that Joseph has really missed his family. But his brothers, on the other hand, have no idea what's going on and they're scared. They think that they're being brought to Joseph's house because he thinks that they stole the food last time and didn't pay for it. And so they immediately go to the steward of the house and explain themselves. But notice that he speaks very kindly to them and he says, you know, there's no reason for you to be afraid. God, your God, he gave you the money back. I have your money. I'm not missing out. Everything is fine. Don't concern yourselves. And so this is the second time that the Egyptians have referred to their God. And this should have given them a lot of peace because, first of all, they're off the hook and this man is being kind to them. But second of all, God is taking care of them. And even the Egyptians see it, you know, from their perspective. Even the Egyptians are aware that their God is taking care of them. So they had blamed God for putting this in their sacks. They said, what is God doing to us? If you remember uh, back in verse 28 of 42, whenever they found the money in the first brother's sack, 
it says that their hearts failed them and they were afraid. And they said, what is this that God's doing to us? Because they thought that God had put the money back in their sacks in order to make them be punished when they came back by the Egyptians for stealing the food. And now the Egyptians are also accrediting God, but instead of blaming God, they're saying, hey, it's of him. He blessed you by giving that money back to you. So you don't worry about it. We have it. And so after that, they brought Simeon back out to them and then gave them water and washed their feet and gave their donkeys something to eat. They must have been so confused. They're like, okay, so you're not mad at us and you have our money. So why are we here again? What is going on? And then Joseph comes in and Joseph is immediately kind to them and starts asking about their dad and then turns to Benjamin and immediately seems happy to see Benjamin. And then notice that he also mentions God, but he doesn't say your God and the God of your father. He says, God, be gracious to you, Benjamin. So Again, this should be a hint when Joseph talks like this, but they just don't have any thought of this possibly being him. And so he talks to Benjamin and is so glad to see him that he's just overcome by emotion and he has to leave before he just starts crying right there in front of him. And so he goes into his own bedroom by himself and cries and then comes back out, washes his face, comes back out and has dinner with him. I mean... This is just so horrible. I feel so sorry for Joseph. It must, I I can't even imagine how emotional that would have been. But when he comes back out, they serve the food and he just sits and chats with them and has a nice dinner with them. Now, there's still some confusing things about it, though, because he seats them in birth order. And so they must be like, what in the world is going on? Why are we here again? Why is he being so kind to us? Why is he asking about our father? Why is he so happy to see Benjamin? And how in the world does he know the order of our birth? But obviously he's royalty. So you're not going to say a word and you're glad that he's not, you know, beheading you or putting you in prison. And so you're just going to let it go and sit there and enjoy the meal, you know, because what else are you going to do? And then also notice that he gives Benjamin five times the food whenever they have dinner. And so, you know, is he trying to make up for accusing them of being spies? I mean, that has to be the only idea in their minds is that he just must be making up for this. And I guess just being kinder to Benjamin because he's had to leave his father all for his silly little notion that they were spies. You know, I mean, that's all that they could possibly have in their minds. But why did Joseph actually do it? Wonder why he actually did give Benjamin more food than the others. I mean. Benjamin was more special to him than the others. He was his only full brother, the only brother that was also born to his mom. And so Benjamin was definitely special to him. But also, I think this is probably a test for the brothers just to see how they'll react. You know, are they jealous of Benjamin like they were him? How have they been treating Benjamin? Was there animosity towards him because Jacob was so kind to him, all of those things. We talked a little bit about this last week about Jacob's partiality towards them. And now it seems that Joseph is just testing that out a little bit. How do the brothers feel about Benjamin? And there seems to be no reaction. The brothers don't seem to be 
concerned about that at all. So we'll continue to watch this relationship with Benjamin and his brothers. But I think that's probably why that happens. Now, we're going to stop there. And next week, we'll see what happens whenever they all go back home. This week, the main message that you need to have in your mind is how helpless Jacob felt and how being helpless is exactly where God wants us sometimes and that we just need to trust in him, the one that can actually help us. And so keep that in mind and then come back next week so you can see how this story continues. Also, leave comments wherever you're listening and email me if you'd like. My email address is Courtney at livethroughjesus.com. Also, the study is there online now if you happen to want to purchase that. I finally got it on there so you can have that to go along with you as you listen if you'd like to. Leave me a five-star review wherever you're listening. And next week, we'll talk about Genesis 44. Thanks and have a good day.